0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden was in Europe for three key meetings, an emergency NATO summit, a gathering of EU leaders, and the G7 all focused on punishing Russia for its invasion of Ukraine one month ago. Biden is increasing aid to Ukraine, wants more sanctions on Moscow, and Russia kicked out of the G20, with Ukraine in as an observer, called on Europe to end reliance on Russian energy, and urged a long-range strategy to punish Uh, Russia and further deter aggression from Moscow uh, by increasing, not easing sanctions. Washington will increase gas exports to Europe and is working with Gulf states to increase production to offset purchases from Russia. Meanwhile, all eyes are on whether China will help Russia as Beijing tries to strike a difficult balance, rally support for its ally, or face the wrath of a global community at a time when its economy is slowing down. North Korea tested its longest range ICBM to date. Israel is bringing together top U.S. and Mideast diplomats this weekend. And the world remembers Dr. Madeleine Albright, the first woman to serve as Secretary of State who was a towering and thoughtful voice in U.S. foreign policy for decades. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Terry Schultz, a freelance journalist based in Brussels who reports for National Public Radio and Deutsche Welle, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Among his many affiliations, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Check out our CAVUS Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris CAVUS and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, Terry, thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to have you back on the uh, program. It's been too long uh, and (laughs) know how exceptionally busy you've been. Uh, What are the takeaways, right? I mean, this is seen as a highly consequential NATO summit, a series of other meetings, right? Uh, The EU leadership uh, met and President Biden joined them. And we also had a G7 uh, meeting. So Thursday was very busy and consequential indeed. From your standpoint, what are the key takeaways?
1: yeah and an, an eu meeting as well, which uh, continues today, although without President Biden, thanks for having me back um glad to be here and yeah, it's been kind of a whirlwind this week because we did have these three summits with President Biden here and I think um of course, I'll focus on the NATO meeting um, that was the the one I'm uh, most interested in and you know what I was really struck by, and I won't do a lot of broad brush strokes on unity and the things they always say of course what i what I was struck by was um something that that basically was a throwaway line um that uh secretary general stoltenberg said and i had to sit there and google and figure out if i really was hearing some news and in fact i was and that is that when they were talking about trying to deter uh putin from using chemical weapons um and they're going to provide more uh defensive equipment um In that vein to Ukraine, some more equipment, some medication. Um, He also said, and oh, by the way, we have uh, activated the CBRN task force. And I was like, wow, that's one thing I didn't know about. And what that what that is, is that NATO has its own never before used um, mechanism for starting to protect allies against a possible chemical attack. And so they are they are concerned enough that Putin is going to do this inside Ukraine and that it might uh, spill over into NATO territories that they're now starting to look at what capabilities do we have? How do we um, how do we prepare both the forces and the general populations um, in case this happens? And that certainly to me is um, is certainly um, a, a notch up from simply warning him, warning Putin not to do it.
0: Um, and and we heard from Secretary General uh, Stoltenberg warned Russia against using those, uh, you know, use chem, you know, warned against, warned warned Russia against using uh, chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons in Ukraine or anywhere else. Over and, and over, out, yeah over and over. And, and the Supreme Allied Commander General Todd Walters uh, did put uh, the, the alliance's nuclear, uh, uh, those, those capabilities, those CBRN capabilities on alert. Right. Biden um, has also said that the United States would respond forcefully, forcefully with its allies and partners. I guess the question now is, what's the sense on where this is going, uh, Terry? And moreover, what folks are telling you about how they think this ends, right? I mean, there is a sense that uh, Belarus uh, right now that Russian forces are exhausted and have been very bloodied, there's a sense Belarus will become involved. Folks are talking about a negotiated settlement. Ukraine is gaining ground at the same time the Russians seem to be taking a a, a pause before restarting their offensive. Uh, what's the sense on where this is going and how it ends?
1: Well, you overestimate my sources and me then Vago, because we ask these questions all the time and nobody, even off the record Intel briefings, have an answer for that. you know, Um, everybody simply says, wow, this wasn't the way Moscow expected it to go. This wasn't even the way we expected it to go necessarily with, with how strongly and and bravely the Ukrainians are fighting back. And, um, I I think that nobody sees an end right now, so they can't tell you how that end looks, uh, you know, that with, with, um, new commitments by the allies to send in more equipment, but not troops. We see that, um. They definitely believe that the fighting is going to go on. There hasn't been any any positive sign out of the the peace ne- so called peace negotiations. I think you know maybe a bit of. of- Potential for humanitarian corridors, which is, you know, for God's sake, the least that one might be able to expect, and even that hasn't worked out well. So nobody sees the end, and that's the problem. When you ask how does this end, because nobody sees an end, and and if they just see see continued fighting. Now the um you're Euro- on the European Union side of things, they've now doubled the amount of money put in this um uh, specially titled European. Peace facility, which is now going to buy weapons for Ukraine, they've just doubled that up to a billion euros. Uh, so all I see happening is continued slog on the ground and trying to, you know, reduce the slaughter of Ukrainians. But there's absolutely no appetite still, not not an iota, for putting NATO troops on the ground. And and you know, we asked the question: What if, as we were speaking earlier about a chemical attack? What if? That happens. Does that constitute an, an attack on a, on a NATO country if you've got contamination coming? And that's another question they don't have the answer to. I don't think they know themselves what they would do. Sure, they've got contingencies in place. And, you know, once upon a time when they wrote out um, how capabilities would be allocated and, and potentially used, I don't, I don't know that they really thought it was going to happen. We don't see an end
0: let me ask you one uh, uh question and i want to um, go to dove uh next um what is, does the alliance have a good approach toward belarus if belarus becomes involved right i mean lukashenko is not any more popular than putin is uh in in europe and obviously is a country that has been sanctioned uh there's a sense that he might send his forces in what are what are you hearing uh about How the alliance would deal with that uh, eventuality and the pressure they would plan to put on uh, Minsk in that case.
1: Well, I mean, there isn't a a big difference between the way they would deal with with Belarus and the way that they deal with Russia. You've got allies with borders with Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and of course, um, NATO was was concerned when when Russia and Belarus used this tactic of sending, you know, these these floods of, of people across the border. That's largely abated now. But um, I, I think that they definitely see Belarus and, and Russia as, as basically one entity now. There has not been any luck in peeling Lukashenko off of Putin. Um, On the contrary, he's only moved closer. And of course, you know, his his air command is completely integrated. He's, you know, renounced neutrality and allowed nuclear weapons to be stationed on his on his territory if Russia wants to do that. So I think that that it's it's basically seen as one entity. There isn't any hope that I've heard that Belarus could be treated or should be treated any differently or any more leniently. It's definitely um, Belarus and Russia in the same breath here.
0: Uh, Jim, we, we just heard from Terry in terms of you know all of all of the stuff that was uh, accomplished at all of these uh, meetings, particularly on the NATO side. Uh, what's your sense? Right? I mean, was you know you've been uh, to uh, an awful lot of these uh, summits. Ultimately, um, did did the president and the alliance do what it needed to do? And more importantly, what more does the alliance now need to do? Especially as the president makes this case that, look, this is going to be a very, very long game. We have to up sanctions. We have to up pressure rather than taking anything off the table.
2: Well, uh, Bago, I think, he, I think he did come away with uh, what he needed at NATO. And the first thing was showing, again, that unity, um, showing uh, that there was a determination still within the alliance, that there wasn't a, a fatigue setting in. Uh, they announced the four new, uh, as Terry, I'm sure, said, they announced the four new battle groups. There's now there's a total of eight. Um, they talked about providing um, chem-bio equipment, you know, protective equipment as well. That's a big deal. That wasn't part of those original packages of supplies. So they've got uh, a chemical warfare uh, uh, kit that they can, that they're going to be able to use. Um, I think of, of what probably also happened that we are not going to hear about, but I think at the heads of state and government level, they actually talked about the, uh, the, what the alliance response would be from a... Nuclear shot of some type, low yield, you know, type of thing, or a use of, of, of chem uh, on the battlefield there in Ukraine. And that was something that I know they needed to talk about. They might have worked through some, some you know, options or something along those lines. Certainly in the bylaps, they talked about those kinds of things. So um, that was crucial. I, I and mean, I, again, I don't have evidence that they talked about it, but I am almost positive that they did. <laughs> uh, oh. Also, finally, I think that they, I think finally, they also agreed that they uh, um, that they were going to have to, for the long term, put in uh, forces along the border with, with Russia, uh, and uh, that was something that, you know, the U.S. The DoD was trying to figure out, or you know, what's our force requirement going to be in Europe. Uh, The allies uh, were thinking the same thing and we needed to make the message to them that they're going to have to really dig deep and provide a lot of forces uh, that we can't do it all. We've also got the Indo-Pacific to worry about. And so that message was delivered. Uh, Allies know that uh, this is this is no drill. This is going to be a big requirement. That they're going to have to meet so i think he came away with the making those messages and i think he i think we're going to have to keep at it it's something we can't just fire and forget we're going to have to keep at it and uh and so i think it was a good a good summit overall
1: vago if i could just come back in because jim sure. jim thought i mentioned things i didn't he did talk about the four battle groups i got carried away by the cbrn uh part of it and i still think that is the most important uh, the most important new thing that ha- that happened at the summit the the battle groups um uh, had been announced a couple days earlier, so that wasn't only, only at, at the summit, but Jim brings up a good point that I think um, the Secretary General has been conditioning everyone to hear, um, not least Moscow, and that is that they have stopped, they have, they have started to talk about these deployments um, as as permanent, or at least as, as very long term, and uh, one of the interesting things for those of us who are NATO watchers is that this, of course, means that you are abandoning the NATO-Russia Founding Act. And that's something that we ask about as well. And I think that that's an underlying theme here that we're going to be talking more about, because uh, if you make these permanent or longer term um, deployments in the Baltic states and um, adding them to Bulgaria, Hungary, Slovakia and Romania, of course, that would not be in line. With the nato russia founding act but uh when you talk to people off the record they basically say you know russia russia shattered that itself we're just not going to say that aloud so this is something that's Um, going to be longer term
0: um jim why not uh at this point say that out loud actually why not scrap that act which the russians have flaunted so consistently over over at least the past decade if not more
2: yeah you know bago i i agree and there's a there is a Growing chorus among a lot of experts. I mean, I'm here in Paris. i just came back from a conference, and there was a general consensus that that the NATO-Russia Founding Act was a creature of its time. Uh, it was, it made sense when, when it was written. It no longer makes any sense. Uh, and I think I think we should tear it up. I, I just I just think this is something that has uh, outlived its usefulness and it's a it's a sham to sit here and continue thinking that it, that means anything to Russia uh, and certainly uh, shouldn't be holding us back.
0: Uh, Dove, I want to uh, bring you into the discussion and I want to go uh, to Patrick and talk about the Pacific uh, and the Indo-Pacific in a moment. But uh, Jim raised an interesting point about um, you know, preparing uh, for nuclear uh, contingencies. Um, there has been a lot more conversation in a very short period of time Uh, about how the United States has to increase uh, the game. I know that I've talked to some uh, uh, general officer friends and folks in the administration. It looks like they're taking it very seriously and thinking through uh, these uh, um, sets. Uh, and the president has, uh, or the White House has convened a tiger team in order to be able to think about this. Are you satisfied uh, with where we've ended up on this summit as somebody who's attended quite a few of these? And are we thinking through the nuclear, chemical, and biological dimensions of this? Because Putin is not stupid. He's doing this to make uh, intimidate us into backing down. Um, but you, it's always better to be ready for an eventuality like this than be surprised by it.
3: Well, uh, you really asked a two-part question. On, on the summit, the one problem I, I had with it, and I think they, you know, they did show unity. It's important to continue to show unity. Uh, Biden showed leadership. That's important in and of itself. What they didn't do is go ahead and say, okay, you can have the jets you're asking for. It's one thing to say we're against the no-fly zone, which they said, and of course, they're against peacekeepers, which they said. But it, it still boggles the mind why, if they're not going to send jets, why they don't send more anti-aircraft systems. And in in that regard, I think they fell short on the uh, whole chemical, biological, uh, nuclear just, issue.
0: Just- Just to point out, though, right? I mean, I think Romania has said that they will transfer uh, their S300s. And if I recall correctly, the Pentagon has said that
3: they're trying to help uh, bring countries together to be able to get this kind Uh, of transfer. Yeah, but but the the point is that it hasn't happened yet. It should have happened two weeks ago. And S300s are okay, they're not the best. Everybody knows there are S400s and 500s out there, the 300s are okay. But we could do better and the West could do better. And it's not yet. And and so that's a concern, I think. Um, But on this on the CBRN issue, uh, I think what they've done is very important because, look, uh, if if you fire a nuclear weapon, leaving aside the fact that it hasn't happened since 45, uh, you've got the whole issue of fallout. And if what happens if the fallout, which is very likely uh, because the last time there was a nuclear explosion, the fallout went all the way to Sweden and beyond. What happens if that goes into NATO territory, whether Article five should be invoked? I think creating that question mark in Putin's mind, the last thing he wants to do now is really fight NATO. Belarus ain't going to help him very much. And it's pretty clear. That his forces are not what everybody thought they would be, would be, much less what he thought they would be. So I, I think he's going to be careful about the, bio, the chemical, biological, um, rather the nuclear. Biological, nobody's really tried because you don't just don't know how the winds are going to blow. The real issue is chemical. And here... Uh, I think the fact that they're going to be sending chemical equi- chemical protection equipment to Ukraine is critically important. What is equally important is to get it to them in time, because that he might think he can get away with. After all, Assad got away with it in 2015. Uh, the vice president at the time was the president today. He, uh, Putin may fool himself into thinking that Biden will do nothing. I don't know that Biden will do nothing. But given that the administration did nothing those years back, he may fool himself into that. So it's very, very important that he be deterred and at the same time that we get that equipment out there not in three or four weeks, but as soon as possible.
0: Um, Patrick, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, into the conversation. Obviously, all eyes are on how Xi Jinping is going to straddle that fence, as I said in the introduction, of helping his uh, ally and partner and somebody who he hopes succeeds uh, in Ukraine to make sure America loses and the West loses, uh, which he feels is going to precipitate a return to a more normal great power spheres of influence, right? Asia is ours, we're Chinese. Uh, you know, Russia should dominate a divided Europe and the United States should be isolated, sitting in between uh, uh, both of them. Uh, what has been, and Dov, I want to come to you uh, in, in, in just a moment, because you wrote a thoughtful piece uh, that ran uh, uh, in The Hill today, uh, the title of which is uh, Beijing is hardly a responsible stakeholder. I think uh, everybody on this call would agree with you on that. What, why don't you give us a sense on what we've been hearing from uh, Beijing over the past week?
4: Well, I think we hear out of Beijing, uh, again, wanting to play at both sides, they're strictly hewing to their narrow self-interest. They're not going to abandon Russia. They don't want America to win this uh, war uh, of uh, struggle over democracy versus autocracy. Um, But they also don't want to be blamed for the war effort. And so they'll highlight their uh, humanitarian assistance to Ukraine uh, they'll talk about uh, a ceasefire, but they won't do anything about it. Um, so, as Dove uh, rightly written in the Hill, uh, they're an irresponsible uh, stakeholder at this on this issue, um, and we're still hoping to, to turn that around. Um, you know, I think the larger points out of the NATO and EU meetings for for Indo-Pacific is that most countries, and certainly our allies in the Indo-Pacific and our partners, do not, as President Biden has said want to see Putin's aggression succeed. But many of them you know, are non-treaty allies, not Japan and Korea and Australia, not Taiwan, which has such a heavy stake in this, but many others in Southeast Asia and even India um, are going to be more non-aligned on this issue. Uh, and it's very frustrating to watch that non-alignment, but they also don't want to see the aggression succeed. And the third point here is that they, along with our treaty allies in Asia Pacific, are very wary of China's growing power. And that's one reason why they don't want to get too tripped up in a European conflict as well, in addition to other reasons not to run afoul of Russia if you're in Delhi or, uh, you know, in in Hanoi. Um, But Japan is stepping up as a G7 member in terms of sanctions, in terms of being willing to watch Russia, uh, you know, end the peace talks on the Northern Territories. Um, Taiwan, uh, Representative B Kim Shao, uh, excellent article, opinion piece in the, the Washington Post uh, this week, talking about um, the fact that for all of the PRC's military might, any invasion attempt will fail to break the solidarity and resiliency of the Taiwanese people. And she says that basically they're on the front line of democracy versus autocracy, and they're united with Ukraine. Um, uh, same thing with Korea. They just had uh, f 35s finally do the elephant walk. All 40 have you now arrived as of this January, and they're trying to demonstrate a deterrence, yes, against North Korea's missile launch, but also because of the instability in the world because of the uh, Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, Australia's prime minister wants to expel Russia out of the G20. That's not likely to happen, but he's taking a hard line on Russian aggression, but he's also wary about this new leaked framework agreement between China and the Solomon Islands that could give a backdoor for military access for the, for the PLA Navy, for instance. And that's shared on the labor part of the uh, political spectrum in Australia, and they may come to power in the late May election. So that's important. The point is that our treaty allies are stepping up more than would have been expected. Others are not stepping up, but they, have a, they know that they, they have a stake in the outcome. Uh, and that's why Admiral Aquilino, US Indo-Pacific commander in Indonesia, looking over the South China Sea, now in Australia, Working with deterrence issues in Darwin and Canberra in Brisbane, um, you know he's he's made this point that none of my assets in the Indo-Pacific have been brought to Europe. Uh, deterrence is strong and we're ready, uh, and that's a very very potent message I think that the U.S. is delivering to Xi Jinping.
0: I should also point out, right, Australia has said that it would extend uh, uh, sanctions on uh, Belarus, uh, which is uh, very uh, important.
4: One more point is
0: simply that I think
4: Asia noted, especially Japan, Korea, Australia, um, President Biden's commitment to keep our longstanding nuclear posture, that nuclear weapons you know, are fundamentally used to deter war and other nuclear weapons, but that's not their sole use. So he's backed off his campaign pledge. He's reaffirmed and reassured our allies on extended nuclear deterrence. Very important at this time.
0: And and of course, uh, you know, since we have discussed uh, nuclear on this program, right? We should also point out uh, that uh, Shinzo Abe uh, wrote that we should consider, uh, the United States should consider deploying uh, American weapons on uh, Japanese territory, correct?
4: So this is really coming down to, in the reality is... Uh, the deployment of strategic assets. So that includes strategic bombers. And in fact, uh, Admiral Aquilina was in uh, the Brisbane area because of a B-2 strategic bomber in Australia. Um, so the question of deploying strategic assets, including potentially nuclear weapons in Japan is back on the agenda for at least debate, even though the prime minister of Japan, Kishida, uh, wants to you know, put that off at the moment. Um, incoming president-elect Yoon in South Korea does want it back on the table. Uh, In Korea, however. So, this is a hot issue. Uh, We're likely to see a lot of debate in Northeast Asia on this in the coming
0: months. Uh, Let me uh, quickly go to you, uh, Terry. Uh, You know, how did the Indo Pacific, uh, you know, you mentioned that there was some Indo Pacific uh, discussion there, but is there a change in perceptions? Are you noticing a palpable change in how folks, even across the NATO alliance, uh, talk about China uh, and how uh, Russia's Ukraine war is shaping how they think about another authoritarian state that also has territorial. Designs. Well, yeah,
1: the fact they talk about China at all is a big change. Remember that in, in 2019, um, you know, in a leader's statement, it was the first time they had mentioned it. So this is this has been a huge change, but they, they have moved quickly. And in the the NATO um, communique uh, yesterday. They did talk about China and warn China not to get involved and to live up to its its, uh, its responsibilities as a member of the UN Security Council. We know how that generally goes. Um, but they did abstain, and this is something that is not uh, it's it's not nothing that they didn't vote with Russia um, on on the Ukraine uh, on the Ukraine resolution. And so I think that. Um, I think that that NATO remains hopeful that China will not um, will not play um, will not play the role of, of, of a supplier to Russia and 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 for the most part, as we hear um, that, that they haven't, and so I think that's really that's really the most that they can hope for is that that China does not step in and and moot these sanctions that were designed to keep um, especially technological capabilities. Um, and finances from going to Moscow. It's it's not something that I that I look at uh, regularly in depth, but just the fact that it was mentioned in, in yesterday's summit summit statement is 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 a huge change. And I think what we're ta- we're talking about, you know, the the new uh, strategic concept moving forward. Um, you know, th- th- there there will be certainly be a, a section on China.
0: Go ahead, Patrick.
4: Yeah, just to reinforce what Terry Schultz is saying. Um, the the uh, in the NATO meeting. Um, In talking about sanctions against um, Russia, they want to make sure not to give uh, an opening, a pathway for Russia to go to China and get the technology they want. And that's why they're working on these export controls. And also National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on the plane over to Europe in the first place, reinforcing the fact that so far we have not seen China provide arms or even sanctions evasion. And we're trying to figure out how with allies and partners we can uh, raise the barrier for them to do so.
0: Uh, Jim, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, back into this, right? I mean, this is an extraordinary change in a short period of time. If you went back six weeks ago, uh, there were folks in France saying, we don't see an invasion. This is, you know, sort of the Americans and the British kind of uh, getting ahead of their skis a little bit, and now everybody recognizes that that was the case. Um, it, you know, how to deal with China? There was still a sense that Europe was trying to straddle that fence uh, as well. Um, how how are things changing, and how rapidly are there change are they changing from a European perspective about how? Europe really does have to change uh, its behavior. You know, you hear this from British friends as well, right? We've been London grad for too long. We can't depend on these autocrats. And frankly, we shouldn't be doing business with them because all it does is make them stronger and then you end up in a war. Any sort of palpable sense on how uh, the needle is, is moving in Europe, especially now that you're, you're sitting in one of the most important European capitals that's tried to sort of elegantly straddle that fence, e- even though Paris itself has moved dramatically. Uh, uh, into the China skeptic, if not China confrontation uh, space?
2: Two things. Uh, one is that there's still exclamations of surprise around the table. Uh, I mentioned I was at a conference this morning at GMF here in Paris, and uh, there was, I was just talking to others as well, and they still s- expressed surprise uh, or the fact that they were surprised before the invasion took place. In other words, they didn't think it was going to happen. There was a lot of posturing going on. The U.S. was running around with intelligence. The Brits were as well, as you pointed out. Uh, and there was the skepticism in many capitals that that Putin was actually going to do it. And so when he did do it, the, there's, they were they were absolutely surprised. The Europeans they were like they couldn't believe it. And they're still surprised that they were surprised. And so I think there's a feeling of, um, in fact, in Germany, I think the Germans this this great leap that they made in terms of capabilities that great leap was made great because they were so shocked that this had happened and shaken by it. I think you can say in a lot of capitals, that people are shaken that they were so surprised. So how that's going to be reflected in terms of following through on pledges of defense spending, et cetera, you know, that's a big question that I, and a lot of people have, will this, once the surprise wears off and the being stunned wears off, are they going to still be putting money in the bank to spend or is there, are they going to, you know, start walking it backwards, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but in terms of China, I, you know, I, I think there, is, there was a gradual ag- agreement in, in, various wa- in, in various ways, uh, it wasn't quite unified, but various uh, types of agreement across Europe, uh, European capitals that China was a problem, it was different than the Russia problem, it's something they were gonna have to work their way through, there was a lot of downsides to, to bumping up against China. Uh, and, uh, and so I think they're, they're not quite, to me at least, they're not quite at a stage where they're ready to take action or so. I think they're still thinking it through. And now with Russia coming in and taking all the oxygen out of the room, you know, there's, there's not a lot of thinking going on about China as much as it is Russia, what are we gonna do about Russia, the, the, how imminent a uh, potential conflict is with Russia. So China is still on the agenda. And as Terry said, that's a, that's a great thing. But I, I think things have slowed down in terms of what do we do about China or how do you define the problem? I think everyone's now focused on Russia.
0: And, and would, you, would you say that there is a stomach to push these sanctions through to their fullest extent, right? Because there's a sense that everybody was very strong in the beginning, but there's been a little bit of flagging of activity. Do you, do you get a, a, a sense that there's European appetite to tighten up?
2: there was certainly a lot of movement at first on sanctions. They were pretty quick. Uh, and, uh, and that was because the sanctions were not like it towards you know, impacting energy. Uh, these were sanctions that they felt they could absorb in terms of uh, you know the double-edged sword aspect of, of sanctions. It rolls back on you. Uh, and I, I think they felt they could handle these. And they were so shocked again by what was happening with Ukraine that they were able to muster the political will to, to, to follow through on these sanctions. But as we get closer to things that are really gonna cause economic problems at home and political problems potentially uh, with energy, uh, then, uh, then, then there's, there, there's not quite the unified push uh, that there was earlier on. Uh, and so when Biden came in and talked about LNG and trying to you know, help provide some LNG support down the road and also alternate sources of energy for Europeans, that that's gonna help them find the political will to put sanctions on energy, but I'm not sure they're there yet. That's what the EU was going to talk about yesterday, um, and I'm sure the discussion is still going on. I think eventually they'll get there, but it'll be a hybrid kind of thing. It'll be a it won't be a total you know uh, shutdown on importation from Russia, but it's gonna it'll it'll be at least a start. But a lot depends on how quickly the U.S. and other sources can provide some energy to, to fill the gaps. Uh, once the gas no longer comes from Russia.
1: Jim, if I could just come in, we actually had a, a Biden and Ursula von der Leyen made that announcement this morning on on bringing in more um, American LNG. And, you know, it may not seem like a whole lot in comparison to what they're importing from Russia um, in terms of the overall amount. It, you know, it's... It, it's um. It's it's not so small compared to the imported LNG. It's it's small compared to the imported Russian energy overall. But yeah, Biden stayed overnight here and they said that before they left. But I just wanted to add another just quick point. Um, just some sort of NATO gossip, because why else am I here, right? But um they I wanted to just say on, on the fact that the Europeans were surprised, one thing I can say is that um at NATO headquarters, anyway, something interesting I think for our audience is that. That um, I kept expecting them to say, well, remember Iraq, you know, remember the the American intelligence, and people did not say that. Uh, diplomats, fellow fellow diplomats, did not say that, and and I asked them specifically. They did trust the intelligence this time, and I talked to the usual suspects who would have, you know, put put it down, and um, they did trust it, and that is not only. Um, not only uh, a statement about whether the intelligence was was sound and was presented in a, in a really uh, comprehensive way, but it was a lot about uh, the Biden administration's extraordinary outreach to allies this time and just like briefing after briefing after briefing after briefing after briefing and officials coming here and, and going to NATO. Um, and I didn't speak to one country who, who was skeptical of the of the intelligence. They didn't know if if Putin would go through with it, but they knew he was ready to go through with it.
0: Um, Absolutely fascinating. We've got about five minutes left and unfortunately have to go into lightning round because uh, I still want to get, Uh, A couple of takes, Uh, Dove, uh, start us off, right? there, The administration is putting out its budget request on Monday. Um, A lot of folks are focused on that, as we've discussed, very consequential in terms of messaging. Uh, And Michael Herson is not on on this. So as as our um, uh, comptroller in residence, uh, you get a bite at this. Uh, Are we going to be satisfied, surprised, or disappointed uh, with what we see on Monday from your standpoint? And what are the stakes that are riding on it? And and what does the administration do to mitigate those stakes, given, you know, they were building a different budget before this happened a month ago?
3: Well, before I I address that, I want to just point out one thing. Uh, Patrick said that, uh, you know, you've got the allies in Asia very supportive, others not. And uh, I was just on Indian television giving them a hard time because uh, right now India's defense minister is considering buying 12 SU-30s from Russia right now. And not only that, apparently they're talking about a deal where it would be rubles for ru- rupees for rubles. And that's to get around the whole SWIFT issue. And I think it's a really important signal as, as to where India really is. And uh, they, of course, have a lot of influence on other countries as well. So that's just worth bearing in mind. As for the budget, everybody's saying it's going to be 773 roughly, uh, from the, for the Defense Department. Everybody knows that that's too low. It's too low in terms of inflation. It's too low in terms of what I think most people think is needed. Uh, the department, and I mentioned this last week, there are senior people in the department who expect Congress to add, them, add more money anyway, as much as $40 billion. The problem, fundamentally, is that there are too many people in the administration who simply don't want to spend more money on defense, in spite of what's going on right now. And if they do come through with anything below, quite honestly, 800 billion for DOD, it's not gonna look good. And I'm afraid it won't look good. And it will send the wrong message Uh, because to constantly assume that Congress is gonna add the money, that makes it very difficult to plan five-year plans. It makes it difficult for industry. And worse, it sends a signal that the administration is not entirely serious. So I do hope that all these reports of 773 are wrong, that they come in much higher, but I'm afraid that may not happen.
0: And we will have a lot more opportunity to discuss this on F-35, hypersonic weapons and everything else uh, in uh, in next week's uh, program. Patrick, I've got to bring you in to quickly ask you uh, about uh, North Korea's ICBM test, certainly the longest range weapon uh, that they've tested, obviously using this crisis as cover. Uh, Tom Carrico, I should point out, Dr. Tom Carrico from CSIS is going to be joining us on Monday uh, to discuss this test as well. But just give us your sense Uh, on what it means, not just technologically, but also from a messaging standpoint, what we're seeing from Pyongyang.
4: So Kim Jong-un has broken the moratorium that he imposed on himself not to test ICBMs, and perhaps he'll now break the moratorium on not testing nuclear weapons as well. And that's what could be the next shoe to drop. Um, Clearly, Kim Jong-un wants to uh, have a firm uh, negotiating position with the new incoming uh, president-elect Yoon when he's inaugurated on the 10th of May. Um, and uh, force him and the U.S., which is now busy with Ukraine, into a sanctions deal. Um, I I see President-elect Yun has also invited the Chinese uh, for discussions, um, so they're likely to happen after that inauguration as well. So stay tuned for both diplomacy and further tensions a la sort of 2017 fire and fury, because this was a missile crisis that has been long in the making. And by the way, the intelligence community got this right again
0: um uh, very quickly dove uh, give us we're running out of time dove give us 30 seconds on this extraordinary meeting that's going to take place in israel uh where jerusalem is hosting us and middle eastern uh diplomats and then i want to get very briefly uh some thoughts on uh madeline uh Albright. go ahead dove on the israel question
3: well i can give you on both uh the israel thing obviously is is very very significant uh it, again it it underscores the degree to which Israel and the Arabs are in a different place. I would point out that uh, uh, Jewish groups are now visiting uh, Saudi Arabia, of all places. Uh, That's a very big deal. Uh, And so, uh, and the Saudis uh, clearly want to patch up uh, relations with the United States, since they see to some extent that the way to do that is via Jerusalem. On Madeleine Albright, who was a personal friend of myself and my wife's, I would simply say that um, she never, uh, ever... Uh, personalized politics. And at a time when people are really disgusting toward each other, I could say that Madeline and I were very good friends, even though we were poles apart politically. And I only wish that people would follow her model. She was a great woman. She leaves a great legacy and we're going to miss her.
0: Uh, she was uh, extraordinary. And I will say that I uh, am impartial on this because my mom did work uh, for uh, Dr. Albright at the U.S. mission uh, to the U.N. Terry, you want to add something because you covered her uh, as well uh, when you were covering the State Department.
1: Uh, that's right. I, I started covering state the, the last year of Albright's uh, term. And I think one of the things that, that um, I think I'll remember most fondly is her friendship with her successor, Colin Powell. And this is—it was—it was really, really special. It was really warm, and I w- was privileged enough to attend Powell's funeral, and she was one of the speakers. And and she looks great, and that's why I was so shocked when this news came. She really looked good. Her speech was hilarious and and warm, and and you could really tell um, what fondness they had. And I think that says a lot about both her character and his. But yes, um, I can just say the NATO meeting was was really. Um, there, were, there was really a podcast cast over it and, and the flag at NATO was uh, the US flag at NATO was, was it half-staffed in her honor and a lot of people just mentioned her in, in passing. So yeah, certainly someone who was very, very well respected in the European side.
0: Um, and, uh, but I have to say that as sad as, uh, the news was, because I do feel she had much to contribute, uh, to the debate and, and discussion. And again, I mean, her sense of humor and warmth were, uh, but, but also her toughness. I mean, I have to say that she could be, uh, very, very, you know, exceptionally tough, but it was great that at least NATO, uh, and the, were convened together so that everybody could remember her, uh, in a, in a collective setting like that. Uh, Patrick, uh, I know you've got a, a story as well, and then Jim gets the last word before we wrap up. Go ahead.
4: Well, I'll refrain from long stories, although she was a real role model to our daughter at Georgetown. Um, I will just take this quote from her memoir, uh, Madam Secretary, because I think it, it, it sort of encapsulates her uh, spirit, the American spirit. Uh, and it's the, the basic principles of human liberty are not so complicated. And if we hold to them, we will find a way to correct our mistakes and set a true course. And I think that's an important message for both domestic America and for our internationalism.
0: Uh, and, and another one was that the United States is the world's indispensable power. And when the United States is engaged, we're all the better off for it. Jim, uh, wrap it up, uh, because I knew that, I know that you knew Dr. Albright for a very long period of time.
2: Well, I, I what I would say is that she was always a fixture at, uh, the mute security conference or, or conferences in downtown Washington, big or small, you know, she was always there and, uh, added so much class and so much intelligence to the room, uh, Her absence is going to just really be felt. And I think everyone shuddered when they heard the news, uh, not just because they're going to miss her, but because her voice is so important at a time like this. And this absence uh, makes us just uh, um, all more lonely in a lot of ways dealing with this problem.
0: Um, It is important to mourn her, uh, but it is also uh, important to remember her memory as a blessing. So with that, everybody, thanks so very, very much for joining us. It was an honor and pleasure. Uh, Our deepest condolences go to the Albright uh, family, uh, extended and and well uh, beyond. And Terry, a special shout out to you. Thanks so very much for joining us and hope you can join us again in the future. Thanks again, everybody. It was a pleasure.